0: But if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open with me to Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1. You'll remember last week we looked at, at the heart of the apostle, the heart of the apostle. His, uh, his plans and his priorities are what we saw there in verses 8 through 15. And then this morning he moves from his heart to the heart of the letter. So we go from the, the heart of the apostle to the heart of the letter. And we're going to be reading just two verses this morning, praise God. And as I was preparing the sermon this week, I, was, I had a bit of a struggle, and I'll just briefly explain it. But the, the struggle was that I, I was preparing to preach the entire book of Romans and everything from Genesis to Revelation here in less than 50 minutes. And if you've been here before, you know that I talk really fast, and like there's zero comprehension when that happens. I don't want to do that this morning. I actually never want to do it. I preach it uh, so that we can understand it. Uh, That's what we're here for. Um, So anyways, I'm going to choose the latter. I'm just going to stay simple. Stay simple. In these two verses, we're going to identify four phrases. Four phrases or four key words that we see in these two verses that really kind of explain why Paul is eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. Right, it explains, it's, it's like a thesis statement. It explains the, what we're going to cover in the rest of the, le- the letter. It's actually what Paul is going to explain throughout the, les- the rest of the letter. I cannot speak this morning. So anyways, these four keywords they summarize the gospel. They show us, it's like a thesis statement. Who just, show of hands, who knows what a thesis statement is? Amen. Who's really good at writing thesis statements? One, two? I'm, I was like, terrible in my undergraduate and graduate program, and um, I suffered for it. But Paul was really good, because everything that he talks about, he goes on and explains. So if you have your Bibles, join me. Romans 1, starting in verse 16, Paul writes this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous... Shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word, we pray, God, that you would soften our hearts to receive it. We pray, God, that you would help us to remove our wisdom, our intellect, our our understanding that hinders us from embracing your word. Father, we pray that that you would speak to us through it, transform us by it, and we'll be sure to give you all the praise, honor, and glory as we live obediently to you. Lord, we love you and thank you for all that you're going to do, and all God's people said amen. All right, so Paul begins, right? We see two things, four words, two things. Those four words first. Power, salvation, believes, and righteousness. Power, salvation, believes, and righteousness. If you're an underliner like I am, that's what your Bible's there for, underline them. Those are going to be helpful later. Now, the gospel, just to start, is an expression of God's power. But before Paul gets there, right, why is he eager to preach? It's because he's not ashamed of it. He's not ashamed of it. Why is he not ashamed of it? For it is the power of God for salvation. Now, this is great news, but let's just... Just consider all of what being unashamed of the gospel cost the Apostle Paul. He was imprisoned in Philippi. He was chased out of Thessalonica. He was smuggled out of Damascus and Berea. He was laughed at in Athens. He was considered a fool in Corinth. He was declared a blasphemer in Jerusalem. And then he was stoned and left for dead in Lystra. Right? Some of the Gentiles in Paul's day, in and around the first century, they considered Christianity as as a form of atheism because Christians only believed in one God. In case you didn't know, we still do today. One God, three persons Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, Some of the Gentiles also considered Christianity to be cannibalism because of a misunderstanding about the Lord's Supper, right? We eat the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not literal, it's figurative. But they understood it very literally and considered Christianity or Christians to be cannibals, and then they also considered Christianity to be foolishness. And we can understand this uh, relatively simply, right? If your little g gods are distracted, they're distant, they're uncaring for the welfare or well-being of men and women then how could this god who's loving who's caring who's self-sacrificing how could this be possible it was utter and complete foolishness to unbelieving gentiles and we know from the rest of the new testament that jews had an issue with this as well we see this extensively in the four gospels and the book of acts and then paul uh, pretty very very clearly deals with it in his letter to the galatians but Anyways, what we see is that even later, uh, there was this attitude that that Christians were atheists, that they were cannibals, and that um, that they were fools. Right now, that may not describe some of you, but maybe it does. I don't know. Are there any cannibals here? No, okay. All right. But archaeologists, what they found is in some of the ancient ruins that they've discovered, they found paintings on them. And I wanted to show it to you, but I'm not going to do that. Um, paintings of a donkey on a cross and a slave worshiping the donkey on a cross, and it says Alexamenos worships his god. It was to mock. It was to make fun of Christianity. And then, in in and around 178 AD, a man named Celsius he wrote a bitter attack against Christianity, and he. Compared Christianity to a swarm of bats, ants crawling out of their nests, frogs holding a symposium around a swamp, or worms cowering in the muck. Now, this today we we may think that because we live in 21st century America, that things have changed, that it's not a stumbling block to some and foolishness to others. But I want to just give you three examples of three people whose thought whose worldview, whose philosophy has shaped 21st century thinking intensely. Karl Marx being the first one. He asserted that anyone believing in God must have a mental disorder that causes invalid thinking. Sigmund Freud, you may have heard of him. He wrote that a person who believed in a creator, God, was a a delusional person and only held those beliefs due to a wishful fulfillment factor that Freud considered to be an unjustifiable position. Or Friedrich Nietzsche, you may have heard of him. He bluntly said that faith, it equates to not wanting to know what is true. So all the way from the earliest time of the church, even until today. Now, we don't, we don't always see it this directly or this bluntly, but there are still those who consider Christianity to be utter foolishness, who consider the gospel to be ridiculous but not the apostle paul the apostle paul was unashamed of the gospel no matter what uh, others thought no matter what they said no matter what they did no matter what he encountered in his ministry he considered or he he still remained undeterred undeterred and unashamed of the gospel now like paul you and i christians if you are in christ here you, we should never be ashamed of the gospel amen and i don't know about you but many of us may recognize the difficulty of avoiding that sin. Jesus knew it was possible. Look, Mark 8 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I don't know about you. Kelly kind of mentioned it earlier today. She's in Kids with Nathaniel uh, teaching, but. When when I was in the army, and the Lord saved me, I, I was under the impression that that you couldn't talk about religion, you couldn't share the gospel. But when I watched friend after friend kill themselves, when I watched divorce after divorce, when I watched dep- like depression grow and build in people's lives, I'm like, man, forget this. I know the answer. I know what Jesus did for me, and I know what He can do for them. For, I, like, forget the job who do you serve? Who do you serve? And I think many of us get caught in that trap where we think that, that God can't get us a new job or keep us in the job if he wanted to. Or, or maybe it's like we're afraid of what it'll do to that relationship that friendship that uh, the the interactions that you have with your neighbor your coworkers or your friends or whatever it is we i think sometimes we get so caught up in the consequences of it that it hinders us from sharing am i off base somebody say yes or no no but the apostle paul was never deterred he was never worried about what the consequences of sharing would be, what others would think of him for sharing. He went and he was unashamed of the gospel, and we should be as well. Now, he was unashamed of the gospel because it it is, he says, for it is the power of God. For it is the power of God. Now, I heard a story this week of a vacuum cleaner salesman. Has anybody heard this story? Vacuum cleaner salesman, he goes to the farmhouse, and just like any salesman, he's got the vacuum in one hand and he's got you know, the stuff for the demo in the other hand. So he has a bag of trash. He knocks on the farmhouse door and before the lady can even say anything, he busts in with the vacuum in hand and the bag of trash in the other and he starts his pitch, you know, 100 miles a minute, just like I'm talking right now. And he dumps it out on the floor and he's like, ma'am, you need to be careful. This This vacuum, it's powerful. It'll suck up the floorboards if you let it. So be careful. But I guarantee you that this... This vacuum, it'll suck up this entire pile of garbage in two minutes. It's like a mountain of dust and debris and all the things that you have, like your little Roomba to pick up for you. I don't have that yet. I still sweep and vacuum and all the things. But anyways, if, if this vacuum doesn't suck up the pile of garbage in two minutes, I'll eat it with a spoon. Takes out the spoon. She finally got a minute to speak, and she said, well, sir, you better start eating because we ain't got any power. And the point of the story is this, is that before you go and promote or try to sell anything, you've got to know that it, that it has power to operate it, right? And the Apostle Paul, he was convinced. He was convinced. He was sold. He was wholeheartedly, like, just bought into this idea, to this truth, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And if you, if you have been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ alone, then you know, if you have been changed by the gospel, then you know, you've experienced the power of God through faith in Christ. So then why are we so ashamed of the gospel? And I can't figure that out, but what I do know is that that word power, it's dunamis in the Greek, and it's the word from which we get the word, or English word dynamite. So the gospel, it carries the the dunamis, the the power, the dynamite of the omni. I was about to do it, Dawson. Not omnipotent. He gets on me. I like to break it down. Omnipotent. It's omnipotence. It carries the omnipotence of the almighty God whose power alone is sufficient to save men from sin and give them eternal life. Look at 1 Corinthians 18 and then 22 through 24 with me. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It may be foolishness to everybody else, but But to us who are being saved by it, who are saved by it, it is the power of God. Now, Scripture repeatedly refers or points us to God's power. Rapid fire, here we go. His glorious power, his irresistible power, his unsearchable power, his mighty power, great power, incomparable power, strong power, everlasting power, effectual power, and sovereign power. Did you guys get it all? Okay. Okay. Right, Jeremiah declared this of God in Jeremiah ten twelve. It is he who made the earth by what? His power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. And then through Jeremiah, the Lord said of himself this in Jeremiah 27, 5. It is I who by my great power and my unstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth. And I give it to whomever it seems right to me. And then in, in the four Gospels, we see that Jesus, by his power, he demonstrates his power. He, he displays it for all to see as he heals the sick. He gives uh, bl- uh, sight to the blind as he causes the lame to walk, as he stills the storm, as he raises people from the dead. It is he and he alone who can save. Amen. He has demonstrated this. He's showed like we have it here in His Word, and we've experienced in our lives if we are truly in Christ. And what I think is so interesting has has anybody just kind of been blown away by like the self help DIY trendy stuff? You know, like uh, Seven Habits to a Highly Effective Person kind of like kicked the whole thing off, and then it was like doors wide open. Now it's like founded on TikTok how to be a better dad, how to be a better this, how to be a better that, how to get ready quicker in the morning, how to how to be more present and more mindful, how to be, get rid of guilt and shame and pain and regret, how to do all these things, right? It's, it's endless. It's endless. Look at Just consider the commercials that you saw this morning if you watched a little bit of TV or the ads that you saw on the way. Everybody's trying to change, whether it's external or internally. But none of these things has any power to change us truly and eternally, amen? Only the power of God through the gospel has the power to change us from the inside out. Only the power through the gospel of God has the power to to strip away all that pain, shame, and regret that our sin brings us. And here's what we need to understand to sort of frame up not only our worldview, but our understanding of, of the rest of the letter We have no power within ourselves to change. One more time. We have no power within ourselves to change. Amen? Look with me. This may be, it's worded a little weird, but stick with me. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? The implied answer is no. Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. The answer is no, you can't. You can't change yourselves, just like the Ethiopian can't change his skin or the leopard his spots. It's not how it works. We have no power within ourselves to change. Yet there's a thriving self-help DIY learned it on TikTok network. Only God's power can overcome man's sinful nature and impart spiritual life. Now the Bible makes it clear. That when we talk about the, the, the power of God and this change that we so desperately desire, whether it be internal or external, it can only come through God. It doesn't come through church attendance. It doesn't come through the sacraments. It doesn't, and I'm talking about the Lord's Supper and baptism. and I'm not talking about any other, anyway, sorry. <laughs> Not by ritual, not by human means. We can't be saved by even keeping God's law. That was given to show us our need for the Savior, our need or inability to keep his law, our, our helplessness to meet his standard in our own power. Right, and this, this power, the power of God for salvation, that's the result. It results in salvation, right? The, so, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Now that word there is "soteria," and we see it nineteen times in Paul's letters, five of which are in Romans, and he uses the corresponding ber- verb, not verb, twenty-nine times, eight of which are in Romans. And the basic idea is a deliverance, deliverance from uh, from sin, from the wrath of God. So when we are saved, we are delivered from the wrath of God because of our sin because that debt is paid for by someone else or you are not saved at all. And when we're talking about being saved in Christ, the only name by which men in heaven and on earth are saved, amen, we're talking about Jesus stood in our place, paid the debt that you and I could never pay so that when we turn from our sin and believe in Jesus Christ, we are delivered. We are saved from the wrath of God against sin. So through Christ and Christ alone, men and women can be saved from sin, Satan, judgment, wrath, and spiritual death. Now even in Paul's day, men and women, they were continually seeking salvation. And it's no different today. Still seeking salvation, but some of us, and just like in Paul's day, they seek it through economic salvation, political salvation, or social salvation, or inner salvation. But none of these are sufficient to save. One Greek Stoic philosopher, philosopher, he said that uh, his lecture room was the hospital for sick souls. Another Greek philosopher named Epicurus, he said that his teaching was the medicine of salvation. And Seneca, a Roman statesman and philosopher who was alive during uh, Paul's day, he taught that all men were looking ad salutum, ad salutum, that's toward salvation. Right, so he taught that, that men were overwhelmingly conscious of their weaknesses and insufficient in necessary things that we therefore need a hand let down to lift us up. So Seneca, he's saying that, that we can't do it on our own, and, and men realize this, men and women recognize this, and we need a hand to pull us up, hand to come down to pull us up. So salvation through Christ is God's powerful hand, amen. We don't need just a distant and distracted hand, an uncaring hand. I don't need the universe to reach down. I need the God of the Bible, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ to reach down, which he did in Christ who died on the cross so that you and I might be saved, amen. Acts 4.12, Peter said this, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. But salvation is exclusive. Salvation is exclusive to who? To everyone who what? Everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. So the sovereign power of God working through the gospel it brings salvation to everyone who believes. Not everyone is saved. Just because they are alive after Christ's death and and resurrection? No, no, no. It's exclusive to those who believe. Pistuo, you guys may be familiar with that Greek word. It's uh, referred to pretty often. But it carries the basic idea of trusting in, relying on, or having faith in. And when it's used in the New Testament sense, we see it in the continuous and the present tense. The continuous and the present tense. So, what it sounds like or what it may read or could be translated as is believing. So let's apply that really quick. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who is believing, is believing. There's a very clear start, and it doesn't stop in the New Testament use. Now, daily living is filled with acts of faith, right? You turn on the water and you drink it you don't know if it's good or not. Or despite all of the different accidents around the world, you still hop on a plane and trust that it's going to get you safely to your destination, right? You still get in the car and trust that people like me are going to obey the speed limit and laws of the road. All of these things are demonstrations of faith. But the, the faith that Paul has in mind here is a supernatural faith that is produced by God as a gift of God, not something that we produce in ourselves. Right, so eternal life, it is gained and lived by faith from God in Jesus Christ. You remember Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is a gift of who? God. Not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. So God doesn't first ask us to behave, but to believe. This is important. This is important because some of us, we look in our own lives and the lives of others as like evidence of salvation being some sort of like, I would say, subjective moral standard. And what I mean by that. As long as I don't cuss, I don't chew, or hang out with girls that do, and I call myself a Christian, people say, yes, he must be saved. He must be a believer. And we're like, oh, man, that's cool. Like, we don't ask about the testimony. We don't ask when they were saved. We don't ask anything. But, you know, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew. Don't hang out with girls that do, and you must be a Christian. But God calls us to believe before he calls us. To behave or obey His word, not the standards that you and I create. But in our own efforts, we always fall short of God's perfect standard, and therefore, no one can save his or her, his or herself. We need to understand that we cannot save ourselves through our own efforts. We always fall short. We'll look at that in a second, but. That means salvation doesn't come by professing to be a Christian or by baptism or by moral reform or by giving to the church or even going to church or receiving baptism or the Lord's Supper or by living a life of self-control and discipline. Salvation is believing that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, that he died on the cross for the reason that he said that he died to atone for sin and that he rose from the dead on the third day for the reason that he said that he would rise and he He's going to return for his people. Romans 10, 9 and 10, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Okay, one more time. Let's read it together. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be? For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is what? You need to believe that Jesus is who he says that he is. You need to believe that he died for the reason that he said that he died. You need to believe that he rose again from the grave. And if you believe that, you believe. That means that we need to throw aside all of our self-perceived notions of our knowledge, our worth, our value, and everything else. We need to throw all of that aside and, and submit to what God has told us in his word. Amen? Because the purpose, worth, value, the wisdom, all of the things that God gives us in his word are infinitely more valuable than anything that I can get from this world. Amen? In his famous hymn, Rock of Ages, Augustus Toplady wrote this. That's really his name. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know, could my tears forever flow. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. You can't do it yourselves. And we'll see Paul build this. He'll he'll build this power of God. He'll build salvation, and he'll build the exclusivity of salvation uh, throughout the rest of the letter. So I'm trying really hard not to punch through the whole thing. I don't know if you can sense that tension, but... I really want to preach the entire book, but I don't think we have enough snacks in the lobby to, to make it through. Anyways, salvation, it has no national or ethnic borders. It has no national or ethnic barriers. Right? The, the gospel is given to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. Now, when Paul writes this, we recognize that his missionary practice, it began in the synagogues he started in the synagogue he started going to the jew first and then he would go to the gentile to the gentiles if the jews didn't receive him either way he traveled to both jew and then to the gentile a few verses ago we saw that he said that he was under obligation both to the greeks and to the barbarians a few weeks ago we talked about the apostle paul was called to be an apostle to who to the gentiles thank you paul didn't leave anyone out he went to the jew first that was his pattern then he went to the non-Jew, or to the Gentile. But although this may be reflecting his, his missionary uh, pattern or practice, I think what we'll see in chapters 9 through 11 is that Paul, what Paul is really trying to show is that that the Jewish people are the chosen people of God. But it didn't stop with them. God ordained that salvation would come through the Messiah who would be born in uh, among the Jewish people. He would be born through the Jewish people. Jesus was a Jew. I don't know if we know that. I knew it was new for someone. And we're reminded that Jesus, the Messiah, he came first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Matthew 15, 24. So the priority to the Jew first, it wasn't just uh, part of Paul's practice, but it was a recognition That they were God's people, and he started with them first. But what we'll see is that all who are in Christ Jesus are God's people. Not going to preach it all this morning. Keep moving. All right, the second part of this, in verse 17, the gospel is the revelation of God's righteousness. Verse 17, look with me. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So in Romans, the Apostle Paul, he explains how God justifies, that is, to declare righteous, how God declares people righteous, how he declares guilty and condemns sinners righteous by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, which creates a unified and a multi-ethnic family. And in the Greek, that term righteousness, it appears over 30 times in one form or another. So righteousness is a predominant theme in Paul's letter to the Romans, amen? So let's just define righteousness simply and quickly. Righteousness, it's a state or condition of perfectly conforming to God's perfect law and holy character. One more time. Righteousness is the state or condition of perfectly conforming to God's perfect law and holy character. Here's the bad news. that None of us in this room, none of us in this world since Adam are righteous. Amen? Romans 3 10 through 12. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Then a few verses later, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Listen, we got to get out of this idea that there are some people who like Mother Teresa or Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr., I don't care who it is, your grandma, it does not matter. If they are apart from Christ, there are none righteous. No, not one. All have sinned, even Grandma Gandhi and Mother Teresa. All deserve God's righteous, holy, and just wrath because of our sin. Amen? But the righteousness that God requires, he provides in Christ. He provides exactly what he asks for. John Stott, he summarizes it this way. The righteousness of God is God's righteous initiative in putting sinners right with himself by bestowing on them a righteousness which is not their own but his this, this righteousness that the Apostle Paul is talking about is the, the only thing that can make unrighteous, unworthy, guilty, and condemned sinners right with a holy and just God. He does it, not you, not me. And he's done it through Christ. But this is initiated by faith. It's entered by faith and it's finished by faith. And Paul's point here from faith for faith, which is, Dramatically confusing to you and I, but his point here is that the righteousness from God, it's completely on the basis of faith from beginning to end. Amen? There's not a point where it transitions to work or to works. It doesn't start by works. The person whom God saves, the person who God calls to himself for salvation, they receive that, that gift of faith to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They enter it by faith and they exit it by faith into eternal life with him. And then for the last point this morning, is that this is affirmed by God's word. Affirmed by God's word. Paul writes, as it is written, written where? In the Old Testament, the righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4, look with me. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his what? Shall live by his faith. And in Romans 4, what we see is the Apostle Paul. He shows that Abraham, who God declared righteous or justified by faith, is is a pattern for all who believe, making Abraham the father of faith. All who believe in Christ Jesus. So we're not going to punch into all of that this morning. But those four words, power, salvation, Believes and righteousness are going to be themes that we see, words that we see, words that the Apostle Paul unpacks and unfolds and explains to us throughout the remainder of our study. But here's what I want to share with you this morning is that there are some people who call themselves Christians who have not experienced the power of God through salvation in Christ Jesus. These are people who call themselves Christians and they come to church and they're great people I'm sure but they have not experienced the power of God. They have not experienced genuine salvation, genuine regeneration. Which is why the church for them is about all of these different things, all of the programs, all of the distractions, all of the everything that you and I know that Christians like to bicker over. Acts 1 verse 8. Matthew, I didn't give it to you. I apologize. Jesus says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will receive power. If you have been born again, you have the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. He has empowered you for what? For witness, for service, to glorify God. It's really simple when we gather. It's really simple why, why God doesn't take us right up to heaven when he saves us. We are here and empowered to glorify him through the way that we serve, through the way that we live, to go and make disciples. We are called witnesses because we've experienced, we've saw something, we've felt something, we were affected by something, the power of God through salvation in Christ Jesus, our Lord, amen? And if you've experienced that, Then you shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. You should look out into our lost and broken world and see that the only thing that this world needs is the gospel. You should see that every time a broken friend, every time a broken family member tells you some horrible situation, the first thing that they need isn't five dollars, it's not a, a nice meal, it's the gospel. And I understand that those things may be avenues toward that, but they never replace it, amen? I'd rather have somebody have an empty stomach that touches their back than eternity in hell. So we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. Like Paul, we should recognize its power. And if you are in here and you have not experienced the power of the gospel that we've been talking about this morning, I want to invite you to talk to me, talk to somebody here. I will stay here as long as you need to. But if Christianity is just some dry, like warm feeling sort of thing for you, this mechanical thing that you do when you feel like, because you haven't really experienced the power of the gospel through faith in Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you to come and talk to me. Talk to somebody before you leave here this morning, because do not be fooled. Salvation is exclusive. It's not by profession, church attendance, membership, communion, or anything else that you and I do. We cannot earn it. We are not righteous. Jesus Christ is the only righteous person who ever walked this earth. Amen. And God freely gives that righteousness to unworthy sinners like you and me.